Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. When we started the Bridge Church a long, long time ago, gosh, it feels like yesterday, but I guess it was really a long time ago, um, our desire was for this community. There's something about this community that draws our hearts, but there's this spirit of oppression, if I can say that, I hate saying that, but kind of, over this community, and and that was something that we really wanted to break. We feel like we walk through the, the streets and the parks and the stores, and you see people who carry themselves as if they don't really have value, or that they'll never amount to much more than this. They don't really see their full potential or their full value. So some of those things are what drove us in the very beginning to start the Bridge Church and what motivated kind of why we do what we do. Some of the um, critical things we wanted to see, though, were for for people to be whole, for people to be healed, for whatever was causing them to live under that oppressed limitation to be broken through for them to find freedom and be who God created them to be. As a result, our desire was for this to be a life-giving church. So it's on the wall and it's on everything we ever print. We wanted it to be a place where people find life and life to the fullest. We wanted it to be a place where people knew that they were valued and important. And we wanted it to be a place where we could connect people with each other and with God. So uh, I'm going to share with you one of my favorite children's stories. This happens to be one of my favorite books when I was a little girl. Um, It was in the collection that I handed Pastor Chris about 19, 20, 20 years ago maybe now. He started school at North Central University. And, and you may have heard he found Jesus when he was about 17. So he missed all of those VeggieTales episodes in Sunday school lessons. You know, so so Jonah and Noah and like some of these stories that many of us have known whether we were really super churched or not, he was clueless about them. And so he would sit in a theology class surrounded by pastor's kids and missionary kids who had clearly heard these stories and many more their whole lives. And he was like, Jonah who? Right? So I came up with the great solution before children's Bible stories for dummies was released via the internet or something, right? So I gathered every children's Sunday school storybook I had and threw them in a grocery bag and handed them to him. And so, so then he had to pour through them at college, kind of like closet reading where nobody could see until he could get caught up on these important basics so he could be a part of the conversation. Embarrassing, but extremely true. So anyway, this book was the one that was in the set. And um, we're going to take a look at it. It's a story about somebody who didn't feel they had value, about someone who is broken and downtrodden and didn't have a lot of hope. But we're going to see how he connected with people, how he connected with Jesus, how he found forgiveness and found his value in that. The story that we're going to read comes out of Luke. It's uh, Actually, we're going to read the one in Mark. It also is in Luke, but I chose the one in Mark to look at. In both of these Gospels, it's pretty early on. So, like, the Gospels start with Jesus being born, which is good. And then um, he calls his disciples. And then he heals a man with leprosy. And then one of them talks about, like, some other minor miracles. But really, this is early in his ministry, before the Sermon on the Mount, before, like, a lot of the things that we're very familiar with. And yet he's already drawing a crowd. If you look with me uh, in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. A few days later... When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. 
They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man. Now we're going to side note for a second. The word paralyzed here comes from a Greek word meaning dissolved. So picture that. Dissolved. Fading away. Disappearing to nothing. Depleted. Have you ever felt like that? Broken up. Dispersed. It says that he was carried by four of them. I think this is interesting. He didn't have one friend. He had four. Actually, he had more than four. If you look carefully, it says some men came him, um, carried him. Let me go back before I say it wrong. It said some men uh, came bringing to him a paralyzed man, but four were carrying him. So there are four that are holding him, doing the heavy lifting, but there are additional one men with who are bringing him to Jesus. And I think that this is a beautiful picture. Uh, the Bible talks about how important friends are. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm, which is super important in Minnesota. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We hear that in um, wedding ceremonies a lot, talking about husband and wife coming together and and being joined with the Holy Spirit. But I think it's really important for us to realize God did not create us to live in isolation. He created us to be in, in unity together. He did not leave Adam alone. He gave him Eve. He does not ask us to just have a relationship with him. He asks us to have a relationship with him and to gather with other believers to encourage each other and to be a part of that. We're called to be a body, not to live in loneliness. And I think that's really important. Uh, These four friends, though, were some interesting ones. If you look at verse 4, I need some friends like this sometimes. Mine are kind of mellow. So it says in verse 4, Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now, I kind of wish that I was a part of this meeting. When they got to the door and they saw the crowd... Whose idea was it that plan B should be to dig a hole through the roof and drop them through? Right? And who were these men? It makes me wonder. Like, were they like, oh, that's Jim and his music is always too loud and so let's go ahead and put a hole in that roof? Or were they like, I mean, really. Or was one of them a roofer where he's like, I know, we can get through the roof, I'll fix it later. Or, like, what's going on in these minds? And um, how exactly do you get a paralyzed man up on a roof? Is there a ladder? Can you picture four large men dragging a paralyzed man up a ladder? That doesn't sound like a good plan. So then I was like, well, maybe there were stairs. (laughs) And please forgive me. (laughs) I could not get pivot, pivot out of my mind. I couldn't do it. I'm sorry. Maybe it was like that, right? I mean, I, I don't know. If you haven't seen that one, I'm sorry. But, yeah, Ross is trying to guide them gently up that beautiful staircase. Um, but it, it couldn't have been easy to get them up there, for one. So then, why was that the next plan? 
I mean, maybe it's because I'm a woman, but I mean, I think I would have been at the crowd of people at the door and said, uh, excuse me, see the guy here? He could probably use Jesus a little more than you. Could you make some room, right? I mean, how many of us are like, pregnant lady needs to use the bathroom and everybody steps to the side, go on. Right? So if you're looking at the guy who's paralyzed on the ground, aren't you going to maybe move out of the way? So why didn't they? Was he too dirty, too diseased, too yucky? Don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. We're not letting you in. But his friends got him to the roof, and they start digging a hole, because that makes sense. One way to win the favor of the guy doing the healing is to have, like, dirt and stuff fall on his head while you're inserting a skylight into the roof, right? Because these roofs, um, one version talks about them removing tiles, but most of the roofs were like um, beams with branches laying across them, and then they would cover it with mud. So if you're picturing digging through some, like, we all have clay in our, or sand, mud, kind of gross stuff, digging through that, there's got to be stuff falling through on his head, right? That's not going to win you much favor. And as the, the roof is opening up, the sun's got to be shining in and distracting everybody who's trying to listen to Jesus as they're wondering what on earth is going on. But um, Jesus is really good. He responds much better than I would have. He says... In verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, faith means belief, trust, confidence. And I'm going to switch the order in these verses, but in Romans 10, 17, it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Clearly they heard. Back in verse 1, it says people heard about Jesus, and so the crowds gathered. They hadn't necessarily seen him or seen what he could do. They were going based on what they heard. And they believed something that they hadn't seen. In Hebrews 11:1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So they hadn't seen it, but they knew enough in their hearts that they were willing to do something that would land you or I in jail for the sake of their friend. Because they believed that something good was to happen. And, and Jesus saw that, whether it was in their eyes or by their actions, he saw that. So in verse 5, he said, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I feel like that verse right there is kind of the crux of the whole story. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is about 30 And he's calling this man, they call him a man, son. We just sing about how I am a child of God. And he just gave him that name at that precise moment. And he said, your sins are forgiven. And I think if I was the guy who had just hauled this man up on the roof and dug the hole, and I'm watching, Jesus, are you blind? He can't get up. Who cares about the sins at the moment? He's paralyzed. That's why we brought him to you. Fix the paralysis, please. That's his problem. Do you not see it, Jesus? Because we can all see he has this problem. And Jesus, why aren't you fixing it? And I think some people think this very deep spiritual. Probably because it was his sin that caused the disease. And so by forgiving his sin, we have now solved things. Now, there is biblical proof. Not proof. There's biblical logic behind that. Um, In Genesis, we see uh, Abram 
pretended Sarah wasn't his wife and went before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh kind of thought Sarah was hot and tried to, like, work that system and ended up having a whole bunch of people in his house struck with diseases and illnesses because he tried to sin. He was sinning. And so we see that sometimes illnesses follow sin. And in the, New, in the Old Testament, in those first five books where the law comes in, God says, if you follow my law, then you won't have the long-lasting illnesses and diseases that the Egyptians had. So he does sometimes tie uh, a disease or an illness to a sin. And if we look at our world, there are lots of illnesses and diseases out there, and some of them are tied to sin. Not everyone who has them sinned and made that choice, but some of them have that connection. But that's not always the case. Um, We also see in John chapter 9, it says that Jesus went along and he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned? Like we're assuming somebody did. Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. So he's saying that's not always the case. This, this guy who's blind, it's just so that I can show off my stuff and show how good I am. And um, I want to share with you I kind of lived that in my life. Um, I don't know how many know, but I come from a family that had four daughters, which was an interesting situation for my father. And we were kind of spread out, but the oldest, the one who doesn't look like she belongs, the only one without blonde in there, Michelle, was born with Down syndrome. And she was born in an era where the moment she came, like they didn't know ahead of time, you know, because they didn't have all the technology we do. And the moment she was born, the doctor said, you probably should institutionalize her. That's probably the best. Just tuck her away. Because that's how we valued that at that point in time. But praise the Lord, my parents were wiser than that, and they didn't. And they took her into our home, and we love that girl, um, until she left us a few years ago and went to be with Jesus. But I remember when I was young... I'm going to try not to get emotional. I remember when I was young, I would pray for her that she would be healed. And I remember that God, do you ever have God like kind of slap you over the head? It doesn't really hurt, but you kind of feel like, oh yeah. I remember God saying to me very vividly, who says she's the one that needs healing, Heather? I'm short one chromosome from what she has. Maybe she's the one that's perfect and I'm the one that's missing something. And not to say that that's really the case, but I, but God was trying to make a point in my heart. Like, I was looking at that and, and perceiving that as wrong or something that needed to change, and God was like, no, no, no. This is for my plan and for my glory. And and even people who came to her funeral, after she passed, one of my coworkers came, and she was like, Heather, I never knew your sister, but I can tell that God really used her life even in her death, like the number of people she impacted. So how, who am I to judge and say that my parents must have done wrong that they had a child that was like that? Or that Michelle must have done something wrong that she was like that? Or like maybe God had that plan all along and that really was his best. So naughty Heather, don't judge. Trust that God has value and has a plan. But back to this story. We don't know. If it was sin that caused the disease or not. We don't know. But what we do know is when the friends haul him up there and drop him at Jesus' feet. Jesus takes care of what he sees that needs to be taken care of. Forgives him. 
And even if that man never got up and never walked again, even if that man's muscles continued to deteriorate and he died, he was healed where it mattered. Right? He probably had a pretty miserable life. But I believe that in that moment, everything changed. I mean, he had friends who haul him up there. He probably was not looked at very nicely. The people who blocked him out of the entrance to the building probably had frowned upon him and complained about him before. It would stink to be stuck on a mat while these men are dragging you up and putting dirt in Jesus' hair and then dropped at Jesus' feet and you have no way to run, (laughs) no way to hide, and they can book it now and you are stuck right there. But I think when Jesus looked at him and said, Son, your sins are forgiven, everything changed. As a church, we need to see the need for friends. We need to see the importance of having faith and believing in things that we have not yet seen. And we need to understand the power of forgiveness. So I'm going to take a moment, and we're going to sidetrack over to the next section of the story, which follows the churchy people that are on the scene. We're going to leave the lame man laying there for just a moment. We'll come back to him in just a bit. But the story continues in verse 6, and it says, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now we tend to judge those churchy people for all their mistakes, but I've got to tell you, if I was alive right then, I would have been in that group. Partly out of noble things. Right? Our desire is to protect those around us. If somebody was walking the streets today saying, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, I have the power to forgive you, I have the power to forgive you, I would really question that. I would be concerned that they're going to lead people astray, that this is some cult, that it's going to gather an unhealthy following. And I would want to do something about that. And I feel like these men were kind of in that same place. They were checking this out. This guy is drawing crowds. We better make sure he's okay and that he's not going to, like, be throwing falsehoods at them that now we have a mess to clean up. So I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that piece. And if we're wondering, like, how do we do that? Because I'm one of those people who wonders, how do I do it right? I am a firm believer that the Bible says stuff, and a lot of it is black and white. And the older I am, the more I realize it is black and white and covered with grace. So we need to kind of watch that balance. But in Matthew, there's some wisdom for us. It says in verse uh, chapter 17, verse 15, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. So watch out for that. But 16, by their fruit you will recognize them. There's the key for us who are in that position where we need to be discerning and watchful and protecting those around us. By their fruit, you'll know. So he goes on a little bit later in that chapter and says, a good tree bears good fruit. Like, you don't get great apples out of a thistle bush. That's not the way it works. So if you see the fruit or the product of what's happening, and it aligns with the Holy Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, self-control, all of those good things then it has to have some good root in there. It has to be tapped into the Holy Spirit, and we can trust it because of that good fruit. So how does Jesus respond? He says, uh, it says in verse 8, Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. 
And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I think sometimes we forget Jesus is God. We know Jesus, we see him on the cross. That's where he stays, on the cross on the wall a lot of times. Powerful, don't get me wrong. That was a beautiful moment in history, and one I'm eternally grateful for. He died, and when he died on the cross, he was saying, I am going to sacrifice my life and pay the penalty for your sin. But even before that moment on the cross where he paid that penalty for you and I, he was fully God, walking those streets, and had the power to forgive. Him looking at that man and saying, you are forgiven, was all it would take, because he was God. Now I can look at you today and say you are forgiven because I know that Jesus died and his blood has forgiven you. So I can declare that because he already said it in the Bible. But that hadn't happened yet at this moment. But God was given, God had given Jesus, also God, the power to just speak the word and have him forgiven. And I think that was what threw those super churchy people for a loop because that had not been done before. But Jesus had not been on the scene before. And when he comes on the scene, everything changes. Everything gets all stirred up and all the rules go out the window and his grace floods in and his law takes precedence. And everything we think we knew goes out the window. And all we care about is that Jesus. So let's take a look at the conclusion. Uh, At the end of verse 10, and beginning at 11, he says, So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, Take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Ooh, I like that part. He walked out in full view of them all. They all saw it. Not just that, but remember that crowd that was blocking the door, keeping him from getting in? They saw too. That Jesus thought that that person who they thought had no value and no worth and they should turn their back and ignore, Jesus thought that that person was worth his time. And I don't know if he was ducking his head or wait or like holding his head proudly as he watched them suddenly effectively part and make way for him to come through. But he did. They wouldn't let him come in, but he surely walked out when Jesus told him to pick up his mat and go home. Not only that, but think about all the miracles happening here. First of all, you have a guy who's paralyzed who has these friends with audacious faith who are willing to do crazy things. Like, that is a miracle. Some of us wish we had that many crazy, wonderful friends, and, and we need to seek God for that. He gets lowered through the roof, and he's forgiven. Whatever was going on in here, God cleaned it all up. And his paralysis was healed. But more than that, no rehab needed. Muscles had been dissolved, fading away. Nikki just had surgery not that long ago, and we watched her, and she kicked rehab faster than anybody I've ever seen. But this was even faster than that. Jesus says, get up, and suddenly his legs can bear weight. He can bend. He can roll the mat. He can lift something, carry it, and walk out the door. Sometimes I have trouble with that entire combination. 
And I didn't. I don't think my muscles are dissolving away, but maybe I better question that now. But um, but think about all the amazing stuff that happened, and that he believed that it would happen. How many of us would lay there still in our filth, going, "I've tried to walk before; it didn't happen. Not going to happen this time." But he believed Jesus at his word that he was healed, and he took action based on that and started a new path of walking instead of lying around. So what do we do with this? And we need to remember, everyone has value. God didn't turn us away when we were full of filth, when we are full of filth. Everyone has value. Let's demonstrate that with our actions. Let's demonstrate that with our words. Let's open our doors and make room for the one that needs to come in. Let's not force them on the roof. We don't need a hole right now. The snow is falling. Let's welcome them into our doors. We need friends. Whether you are the one stuck in the muck, sitting in your filth, hoping somebody takes mercy on you, or whether you see somebody who needs to be hugged, picked up, encouraged, we all need friends. It takes effort. It takes humility. It takes time. But it's needed. God calls us to to surround ourselves with other people. So we need to use that investment of time. We need to connect with people. And we need to connect with the ones we don't expect. You know, I teach um, two different kinds of classes right now at this moment. I teach all kinds of stuff all year long. But right now, I have one group of upperclassmen who are college-bound in a college-level class. And I have one group of sophomore-ishes, we'll say. They're kind of a mix, but mainly sophomores. And they are um, not lovers of mathematics or academia. And um, what's beautiful to me is those students, I was just telling my husband, oh my goodness, I wish you knew the, the amazing people we have in this community. I, I have this one darling every day. I mean, he's like six feet tall, super athletic, super sweet. The bell rings and he goes, oh wait, he'll turn around, come back over, Thanks, Mrs. Vincent. I hope you have a good day, or I hope you have a good weekend. What kind of 15, 14-year-old kid does that? Every day. He will not miss a day. If he does, he turns around and comes back to tell me. And I have other darlings. We'll, we'll come back on Monday, and they will say, Vincent, how was your date on Friday? What would you do? Who does this? Who knew that these kids who I, my heart, my heart for that particular group is for them to know how valuable they are for them to see their full potential like that is like my math yeah whatever but like I want them to see like you can do this you are capable you are strong you are worth something and yet those kids that I feel like they're my mission to pour into are the ones that are speaking back at me so that person that you might see that's like okay, Jesus, I'll try to talk to them. Like, who knows, but that they might just pour something back into you that you never expected. We need each other. We need those relationships. So make sure that you're connecting. The Bridge Church tries to provide opportunities and small groups and things, but sometimes you got to put a little elbow grease into it and hunt them down. Take them to McDonald's. Put a little time into the relationship. Do whatever you can to, to be connecting with people. We need to connect with Jesus. All of us do. I know sometimes I need to get out of my chaos and have somebody just drop me at Jesus' feet and leave me there. 
I think that's what we're kind of trying to do with Pastor Chris. I think that's the elder's intent. Just be at Jesus' feet. And I need to let Jesus speak into me what Jesus wants to do in me. Not my agenda. Not what I think he needs to fix in me or in my neighbor. How many of us do this sermon like, yep, that's for you, honey, next door. Right? I'm totally guilty even when my, sometimes Pastor Chris will preach. We'll get home, what'd you think? I'll kind of quote some of his things right back at him like, ah. Or he'll be, uh, he'll be in the middle of like some situation we're arguing about something and, and I'll, I will recite a line exactly from his sermon. Like I heard somebody once say to me and then throw it out there. So, so totally guilty, not going to lie. But, but what does God want to do in their heart? Not what do I think needs to be healed and changed. What does God want to do? What does God want to change? It's always a better plan. And we need to have faith. We need to believe in what we can't see. Sometimes we get hung up on the details, and the details that really don't matter. We need to hang on to what we know that we know. What have we heard? We've heard that God came in the flesh, that he died on the cross, that he forgave our sins, that he loves us, that he wants to spend eternity with us, that he thinks we're important. All the other details... Like those questions my kids ask me about heaven and are there going to be dogs there and, you know, those really critical things to 10-year-olds. They don't really matter. I don't know. If they're there when I get there, great. If they're not, okay. What matters? Jesus. And I'm going to bank on the things that matter and I'm going to put my faith in those things and believe that God says he has good plans for us. So when it doesn't look good, I'm going to bank on that it's going to get good. So think through as we close. What does God need you to do? Is there somebody that needs you to drag them up on a roof and drop them at Jesus' feet? Do you need somebody to come alongside you and do that? Do you need to believe that he can do something? So when you read it in his word, you go, yep, that's true, and I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk it out. What is it that you need? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful. Just so thankful, Lord. I'm thankful that I never had to be that paralyzed guy. I'm thankful that you've given me health. More than that, Lord, I'm thankful that you call us your children, that you say son or daughter when you look at us, that we're important to you, that we matter to you, that we always have and that we always will, whether we're filthy or we look like we're cleaned up or trying to be. Lord, I just pray for each one in this room, wherever they're at, in their own hearts, if they need to find that faith in you, Lord Jesus, I pray today would be the day that they go, I don't fully get this, but I'm going to bank on what I hear, and I'm going to believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. Oh, Lord, may they make that so. And if we need friends, Lord, I pray that you would bring people into our lives and help us see them, help us recognize it, and help us be willing to put in the effort. Not fearful of rejection, not fearful of the what-ifs, Lord, but just throwing ourselves out there and trusting that your plans for us are good. And Lord, if there's somebody that needs us, would you show us so that we can come alongside and love them and, and build them? And Lord, would you give each one in this room quiet time with you? Wherever that is, whatever that looks like, in their office, in their car, in their home, 
in their yard, in the shower, whatever, Lord. Give them quiet time with you where you can speak to them and you can begin to do in their hearts what it is you want to do, how you want to heal them, what you want to work on, that they would be made more and more whole and more and more like you each day. Thank you, Jesus. May we always leave your presence changed. Amen. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.